It's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. Welcome to an unusual edition of the Backseat Driver Podcast with It's Me, Mark Stone. Back in 2020, I was invited by Tim Nash, organiser of the Lombard Rally Series for Historic Cars, to interview the great and regrettably now late Brian Culcheth for the online rallying programme Fuel for Thought. Little did I know how important this interview would become. Brian Culcheth was one of the greatest and most versatile rally drivers the sport has ever seen. His ability behind the wheel of virtually any car and a vast variety of cars verged on unequalled. But interestingly, Brian, who was born in 1938 and the son of a coalman, didn't have what you would call probably the best opportunities to get into motorsport. Like a lot of lads of his time, he was never greatly interested in school. To a degree, he was better known for his passion for sport. Very, very accomplished footballer. He had trials for Watford. He was extremely capable as a table tennis player. And back in 1953, the Daily Mail gave him his first job as a tape room boy, which meant he ran messages all over London. He passed his driving test in 1955, and having been able to go and watch the motor racing at places like Crystal Palace, Brands Hatch, uh, his interest in cars and motorsport very quickly developed. And like a lot of people of that age into those. He would write up for jobs uh, advertising autosport but was rejected for being too young. But back in 1959 he cracked it. A London garage realised that he had written to them on more than one occasion and decided they would take him on as a trainee salesman. He also joined the Harrow Motor Club or the Harrow Car Club. In response to an advert, Brian contacted the club secretary, Les Needham, that he suggested he went along to one of their club's fortnightly nogging and natty meetings at the Red Lion in Radlett. And the first person he met there was Peter Browning, who would have a significant influence over his future career. Brian, like a lot of people back then, couldn't afford a car, so they took up co-driving which is something I've tried not very successfully. I like to see where I'm going, which means I have a habit of not looking at the pace notes. So some folk are cut out for co-driving, some aren't. But you'd be surprised how many people, just like Brian Culcheth, started life as a co-driver before progressing on to being behind the wheel. Over the years, Brian drove a variety of cars, as I said. One of his first outings uh, was with a friend of his, uh, Norman Dennison, who let him have a go behind the wheel of a Renault Dauphin at Silverstone. It was discovered that Brian was faster than the man who owned the car, and when the man who owned the car went out to try and beat Brian's lap times, he stuck it on its roof. One of Brian's other exploits and early rally careers uh, was in a van hired, uh, a a console van, a Thames van, uh, and he rallied this hire van. But it's not the first time vans have been used in rallies, and it's certainly not the first time hire cars have been used in rallies. But 
he went out and he did quite well. Over time, Brian progressed through a variety of cars and a variety of jobs. The simple reason, back then, very much like today, rally drivers have to fund their own sport. So after the van, he developed a passion for Austin Healey frog-eyed sprites. One of the great reasons being, in many ways, it was a two-seater rear-wheel drive Mini because they used the Mini engine and it meant you could upgrade the engine, you could do a whole host of things with frog-eyed sprites. And even today, they are, shall we say, a very handy little vehicle on a lot of historic rallying. He then became involved with John Sprinzel, another great name in rallying, and progressed on into the sport. Uh, until 1961 when first car and adventure overseas was the Leon Charbonnier Stuttgart Solitude Rally, a long-winded name for a rally that took part in a variety of countries at a variety of circuits. From there he just did well. The cars he drove and the cars he made to perform were exceptional. As I said he continued with the sprites for a long while um, he then went on to the Heelys, uh, the full-size Heelys, the big bangers, the blowers, the three litres. Uh, he then co-drove and drove Mercedes 220SE before, like many, getting into the Mini Coopers where he did extremely well along with his teammates or occasional teammates, the most legendary of course being the one, the only Mr Paddy Hopkirk. But, like all drivers of that era, they were looking to do better. He, sir, he then went on to drive with Triumphs, uh, the TRs in legendary events such as the Liège, Sophia Liège, uh, various things. He drove a Triumph 2000. Uh, his, one of his most famous exploits, of course, were with the 1.3 Morris Marina Coupes, a car that, by his own admission, was extremely good as a rally car because it was very light and very nimble. They did rally the 1.8. In countries where the 1.3 wasn't available, Brian would rally the 1.8 version with the MGB engine. But he always said the 1.3, if they could have got a little bit more power out of the 1.3, it would have been a virtually unstoppable rally car. He then drove the Triumph Dolomite or the prototype Dolomites and found that if they followed what Brian had suggested to the engineers, it would have been an escort slayer. But, like most things involving British Leyland or BMC, it never came to fruition because at times they couldn't work out what was the point of rallying. His other famous exploits, of course, were in the Triumph 2000s and the Triumph 2000 PIs. Uh, he just did staggeringly well in variety of cars and to watch him on some of the uh, online films of him driving the TR7V8 around Corsica is an absolute education, an absolute education, an absolutely brilliant man in every respect. But the most famous rally he is known for and he came second once again in a Triumph 2000, was the World Cup Rally, the Wembley to Mexico City in 1970. This was an absolutely unbelievable event. It was then regarded as the hardest rally 
that anybody could have put together. It crossed vast tracts of Europe before heading over to South America and carry and once again it just was relentless 16,000 miles in total was the rally and they had to cover this mileage between uh, April 19th and May 27th not many cars finished the event though plenty took part and the start in Wembley was an absolute monumental affair but Brian finished second uh, he still regarded it as the best rally he'd ever driven in and he drove all over the world England Europe Australia Africa North America South America Canada Brian had an absolutely global career and when he wasn't rallying one of the things he did after each event he would fill in a detailed report on the car and let the uh, the manufacturer the team know exactly how the car had performed how the tires had performed how the oil had performed did the geared box need altering did it need different ratios did the rear diff need different ratios which were the best tires which did it perform best on on loose surface which did it perform best on on smooth surface brian was an absolute rallying perfectionist which led on to him being a regular on the after dinner speaking and promotional scene once again all over the world clubs would ask him and invite him will you come and give us a talk very much like a lot of drivers do today but there's not as many of them doing because rallying and motorsport as a whole has changed considerably but near the end of his life uh, Brian of course stopped rallying and turned to his two favorite hobbies he had a vast and very very detailed model railway which he loved to bits and he enjoyed cycling uh, much to everybody's surprise given of course at times cyclists and motorists don't always get on together but as I said this 25 minute interview has suddenly taken on very very serious significance so sit back and enjoy courtesy of my association with Tim Nash as I said from the Lombard rally series my all too brief interview with the great and now lamentably late one of the world's greatest rally drivers Brian Culture. And on today's show, I would like to introduce you to the one, the only, Brian Kulchuk, the man described as rallying's Mr. Versatile. Uh, <laughs> Brian, welcome to Fuel for Thought. Thank you very much. It's uh, very exciting to be involved and uh, a new uh, innovation and uh, hope it goes well for you in the future. Uh, I mean, you don't mind, I conclude, being called Rallying's Mr. Versatile because over your career, I don't think there's anything you haven't done within the world of rallying. No, I've uh, travelled all over the world doing some very adventurous rallies like New Guinea, um, Malaysia, Jamaica, uh, Trinidad, Tobago. Um, these were rallies that were important to British Leyland at the time, who I had a long association with, uh, and that back started in 1963 with the Monte Carlo Rally in a Mini Cooper. Um, and for those who may recall that 1963 was a very tough winter and um, we started from Glasgow and you have to remember in those days that Monte Carlo was the event. Everyone wanted a 
do the Monte Carlo Rally. And there were 450 entries that year. And the uh, popularity of the rally was such that the organisers would allocate a certain number of uh, places for each country. And Britain got 100 places, uh, of which there were 350 applicants. But because being a works car, we got automatically accepted. But on the event itself, um, you know, we when we got to Shap on the A6, the road was totally blocked with probably snow 10, 15 feet high. And we thought, well, our rally was over. But out of the mist came this chap and he said, I'm the snowplough driver. I'll snow plough the road for you and you can follow me over. <laughs> and that's how it, how it continued all the way to Monte Carlo. I mean, that was the one thing, unlike today's modern events. I mean, you drove from Glasgow to Monte Carlo. You'd driven a rally in itself by the time you got there, hadn't you? Well, yeah, and it was a, also a case of endurance. You know, you didn't... Uh, the, the first three days, you didn't get any overnight rests or a coffee break every 10 minutes or a massage every half an hour, uh, like to modern... <laughs> Uh, drivers and uh, you had to look after your car and you drive in all conditions the the roads are st all open to the public so you have to drive sensibly till you get down into the french alps when of course the roads then were closed off so you could then go as fast as you needed to um and, I mean, you've got a, an incredible association with uh, what was BMC and British Leyland and the Mini Coopers. Um, I mean, you, you must have enjoyed driving these cars, apart from the fact you were a works driver, works coal driver, etc. I mean, you're the man that made the Morris Marina famous. <laughs> yeah, well, the marina, of course, had a, a, a terrible reputation, but with the public. But um, the time that the Abingdon Competitions Department got hold of it, we made it into a really, really good car. Um, the the first rally they asked me to drive was was the seventy one RAC rally, and. Um, uh, I first tested the car, it had so little power, when I pressed the throttle I wasn't sure whether it was connected or not. Um, but uh, the... Because um, just putting in, it was the 1.3 Marina, wasn't it? It wasn't the 1.8, it was the smaller engine one. Yeah, the, well, we won uh, a class in the Thousand Lakes with the small engine car um, because it um, was more competitive in that class than the big engine 1.8 car. Um, and you don't win a class in the Thousand Lakes without a good handling car. And the little coupe, Marina Coupe, you know, I absolutely enjoyed driving that car. And um, we also had two rallies that we won outright with the Marina, one in Hong Kong uh, and one in uh, Malaysia. And the Malaysian event eventually became a world championship rally. But of course, 
in the mid-70s, you know, I was a sort of pioneering, really, on these type of events. And British Leyland uh, did events that where they wanted to sell cars. Uh, and, I mean, like you mentioned Hong Kong, I mean, there's the famous story, because of the PR work you were doing for British Leyland, uh, you had to drive Tom Jones around in a pair of trousers so tight that poor Tom couldn't sit down. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we um, we had the luxury of uh, uh, that year doing quite a lot of rallies with long distance flights to Hong Kong, for instance, and so we were able to fly first class. And um, when we got on the plane, the two chaps in the seats opposite us was Tom Jones and his manager. And um, anyway, by the time um, we got to Hong Kong, Tom and my co-driver Johnson Sire had made good use of the free drinks. Um, but I negotiated with Tom's manager after a discussion about how Tom was going to get to the stadium. And I said, well, I'll organise the cars. And because... Uh, British Leyland were absolutely delighted with the publicity and I took Tom to the stadium with him standing up in an MGB holding the top of the windscreen because, as you say, his trousers were so tight that he couldn't sit down. Um, so uh, after the show, um, I collected Tom in an Austin Princess um, by which time it didn't matter whether his trousers were on or off. And um, the, uh, as I say, Leyland were delighted with the publicity and, of course, we won the rally as well with a 1.8 marina. So it was uh, a good trip all round. So, I mean, one of the other events you were well known for uh, competing in was the Rally of Cyprus, was it not? Uh, yeah, that was that was really one of the toughest rallies that I've ever done. Um, the Trudos Mountains were incredibly tight roads, and you spent a t tremendous amount of time in first and second gear, and it was really tough on the car. Um, the first year, I did the, with the big Triumph 2.5, which was a real handful uh, in the mountains, and sadly we we lost the rally. Um, just before the last stage when the throttle cable broke and um, we were already 11 minutes in the lead and sadly lost the rally by just over a minute having tried to repair it. Um, the following year I finished second overall with the marina uh, and that was a, a little bit controversial because um, we were declared the winners at the finish um, but when we woke up in the morning, the, the Prime Minister of Cyprus' son had won the rally. Uh, and it was <laughs> too late to make a protest because we finished up getting docked with some time that we didn't lose. However, um, and then we went on third year, uh, with, again with the 1.3 Marina, and um, we were holding a good place when we got a puncher uh, and um, the car fell off the jack when we were trying to change the wheel, so we lost a bit of time, but it was an incredibly tough rally, really tough. And I, it was actually in the World Rally Championship 
a few years ago and I was told that the drivers didn't like the rally because it was too tough. But I mean, the other major rally you were involved with, of course, was the World Cup rally, the rally we should have been celebrating a major anniversary of this year. And that would have probably made the Cyprus rally look uh, somewhat tame. <laughs> yeah, well, the World Cup rally was, without doubt, the greatest rally of all time. I mean, that's now acknowledged that it, it was just an incredible event, 16,000 miles uh, through the um, Europe where we had uh, five of the special speed tests covering rallies that had been run in the past, like Monte Carlo, the Tap Rally, Portugal, Liège, Rome, Liège, uh, and then into South America, 11,000 miles in South America. Fantastic speeds. Um, the Uruguay section, just under 200 miles, we averaged 104 miles an hour, and the car drifting through these corners, 130 mile an hour, one after another was just absolutely sensational. The highlight of my whole driving career was fantastic. But I, I spent six months preparing for that rally, starting with the very beginning of the test trip program at Bagshot in England. I did two reconnaissances in South America, um, two reconnaissances in Europe. So I'd already covered 30,000 miles before the rally started. But it was just amazing. And you had sections, the section from Santiago in Chile to La Paz in Bolivia was 57 hours non-stop, all at altitude. Um, in that time, you had to cover a thousand road miles and a thousand special stage miles. I, the, the, the pace was so strong that I drove for the first 41 hours without a break, other than refuelling. And when we got to the end of the big 500-mile uh, special stage, um, we were only six miles from our service crew at the finish and the mechanics had to carry me out of the car. I was so exhausted. And then I managed to get three hours sleep before we carried on for another 16 hours. I mean, the other thing, look, it's like looking at the uh, the footage that's running alongside us while we're talking. These cars, okay, they've got the roll cages and they'll have the uh, they have the improved suspension, etc. But uh, I mean, they were ostensibly showroom cars. That was the Marina having the puncher changed. <laughs> but these were ostensibly showroom cars. You can, you can see there that uh, it's very dusty and very, very twisty, narrow roads. Uh, you can see there me changing the puncher. Uh, very lost us third place, that did. But we finished sixth, anyway. But the other thing on these not major events, on these major events, you couldn't change the components like they do on the modern rally cars. I mean, you had to, the car had to finish under its own steam with as little attention as was possible. Well, yeah, and also there wasn't the time. 
um, you know, rallies like the Alpine rally and that, they only gave you 15 minutes lateness. So if you were over 15 minutes later at control, you were out. Um, and there were some events you were um, um, penalised if you changed the back axle or the gearbox. And in the case of London, Mexico, you know, 16,000 miles, um, you weren't allowed to change the axle or the gearbox. And if you did, you were out of the rally. So, I mean, what did you do to try and ensure these cars survived till the end? Was there a, was there a, did you adopt a slightly different style? I know you said at times you'd only 15 minutes lateness, but what did you do to try and keep the car going? Well, the the um, the thing was that as you moved into the seventies, from the sixties where cars were more more fragile, and you had to nurse the cars to finish a ra- rally with equally trying to go as fast as possible to win it. But in nineteen seventies you started to get to a situation where everyone was going flat out all the time. Um, And in the case of London, Mexico, um, you know, we had uh, three uh, work triumphs. Paddy Hopkirk and Andrew Cowan were my teammates. And there was also a fourth car from Evan Green in Australia. So these were really tough cars, um, but they weren't as fast as the escorts, and there was eight works escorts. So it was quite a battle to try and keep the car in one piece and go fast enough to try and win the rally. Um, sadly, we didn't go quite fast enough and we finished second, but it was a pretty <laughs> phenomenal result in a, such a, an incredible event. I mean, after you'd finished that, were you given any time off by uh, by the works team? Or was it a case of, right, next next event, off you go? Well, four days after I got back from Mexico, I started the Scottish Rally and won it with another 2.5. <laughs> and then I might have had a couple of days off. But when you've been driving, like Mexico... It's very hard to go to sleep because you're in bed and there's noises going round you all the time, gear changes, stones crashing under the bottom of the car. It's a pretty phenomenal experience. Now, I mean, the other thing is, uh, returning to famous people, you uh, also enjoyed the pleasure of uh, dinner with Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, did Richard Burton have anything to say or was he around at that time? Well, luckily, she was between husbands at the time. I thought I might be in with a chance. But, um, the, um, no, the, uh, that came about because uh, a lot of my time at British Leyland in the mid-70s was spent doing promotional events. And there was a, a week in Los Angeles where um, British Leyland featured heavily in a weeks-long exhibition in their stores called Broadway. They were similar to our John Lewis's here. And there was a big display of British Leyland cars. 
and um, I was there and uh, work, uh, being in the stores each day talking to people about um, the products and at the end of the week the uh, chairman of the stores um, gave a very exclusive dinner party for 25 people involved and there was um, people like Peter Sellers, um, uh, Sammy Davis Jr, Gary Grant and above all stunningly Elizabeth Taylor who was the most beautiful girl, absolutely sensational, beautiful eyes, sparkling like diamonds, she could have had me easily. <laughs> what do you think Richard Burton had that you didn't? Uh, well, I don't. I think it uh, was a time between when they weren't married. But and the other thing is, you're celebrating the launch of your new book. Yes, yes, very excited about that. It's. Um, I just heard from the printers today that the proof is on the way. So by uh, a couple of weeks' time, we will have books for sale. It's about my career, right from the club rallies right to the world stage. Um, 300-odd pages with 350 pictures. So uh, even if you can't read, you can look at the pictures. <laughs> I mean, do you, I mean, what, what do you do now? Do, do, you, do you still do any driving? Do you still rally? Are you to be seen on the special stage? You're behind a wheel? Uh, no, not anymore. I, uh, I did a few things like Goodwood Festival of Speed um, and I drove the uh, course opening car for Tim Nash and his Lombard rally, uh, which was, you know, just a bit of fun. And, um, and, um, but I don't do any, uh, I haven't done any of the uh, classic rallies that have um, run very popular now. But I did actually the very first one of the classic rallies, which was um, the Golden 50 RAC rally. And that came about by Paddy Hopkirk ringing me one day and saying, how about us doing this Golden 50 rally together? And I said, well, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, at that time, I was teaching at the Silverstone Rally School, uh, so I was still a bit in touch. Um, but Paddy hadn't done anything for ages, so um, Leyland uh, agreed to prepare a Mini Cooper for us, and um, uh, Paddy did all the races, and I did all the special stages, uh, and we won it. <laughs> so uh, that was very satisfying. Uh, that was 1982, and then the classic rally scene grew after that enormously, and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Mark, about um, people identifying with the product. People could go and buy the same Mini Cooper that I was rallying, or they could buy the same Triumph Dolomite Sprint, uh, and they looked quite similar to the car that they had themselves. And of all the cars you've driven, which which is the rally car that stands out for you the most? Which which did you truly enjoy driving? 
the Triumph 2.5 that I won the Scottish Rally with was just fabulous. It was the most powerful Triumph that came out of Abingdon. It handled superbly, had a special set of gear ratios which suited the Forest's uh, rallies in Britain. And bear in mind, in those days, you weren't allowed to practice the Forest rallies. You had to drive what you saw. And that was the first car that I genuinely did over 100 miles an hour in the forest um, a number of times. Uh, and that was a sensationally beautiful car. And from the sounds of it, you drove the car at over 100 miles an hour on stages that you possibly hadn't seen. That's right. Yeah, you drove exactly what you saw. So it was pretty exciting stuff, and uh, you had to be you had to be slightly balmy as well. <laughs> but, but I also I finished my career with a car that I thoroughly enjoyed as well, and that was the Opal Cadet, which um, after my fourteen years at British Leyland, I finished up at um, Opal for a couple of years which was managed by a good friend the late John Hanley and um, he asked me to join the Opal team where I had an Opal cadet which was nicknamed Little Magic uh, and I won all seven rounds of the British Open Group 1 Championship um, and it was interesting that after driving for 14 years at Leyland, I never won a championship, but I went to Opal and one year I won a championship. <laughs> I think it say, um, says something about reliability, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you miss it? Would, would, you, would you do it again? If, you got somebody, if Tim offered you the chance, would you go and do it again or have you decided to hang your driving gloves up? Uh, not now, no. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I feel whatever you do in these things, there's an element of risk, and I'm yes. past doing risk. <laughs> in other words, in other words, you've got a bad case of common sense. Yeah, sadly, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I now spend my time cycling. <laughs> cycling, cycling. Yeah. So you'll see, you'll, you'll you'll ride down the road and now criticise and mourn about all the motorists now, won't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for joining me, and thanks very much for, uh, as I said, coming on, joining myself and Tim. It's been a pleasure, and all being well. Whatever the state of the historic rallying this year is, uh, the Lombard Rally Bath will be on and it will be rather nice to see you there and have a chat with you face to face. Well, Tim said that I'm always welcome to drive the course car, um, so if it happens, uh, you can rest assured I shall be there.
rarely beaten on price, never beaten on service. Whether it's cars, bikes or commercials, Hoddy Tires are the best in the business. And when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle's specific requirements, nobody comes close to David Lakin and the Hoddy Tires team. So give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk. Thank you.